want to welcome you um, to our series called The Way of Jesus. If you're here for the first time, uh, this is a series that we actually, this is one of the longest ones we've ever done. Uh, it was a two-part series that started all the way back in January. In the first half of the series, we walked through Mark's gospel account, and we were primarily asking the question, who is Jesus? Uh, then after Easter, we kind of pivoted from that and said, okay, if that's who Jesus is, then what is this lifestyle that he invites us to follow him into that we refer to as Christianity? What is Christianity? To answer that question, uh, actually, we've just been letting Jesus answer that question for us because thankfully he gave a teaching during his time here called the Sermon on the Mount that is probably, if you're looking for a, a one specific place that answers that question in a condensed, exhaustive way, I don't know that there's a better place in the entire Bible than that particular message of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. Today, I uh, give you that little recap because today is the final week of our series. And so we are looking at the conclusion of Jesus's teaching as recorded in Matthew's gospel account. And uh, as is often the case with Jesus, you may find that what he says uh, surprises you. So I'm in Matthew chapter 7. We're going to ride through um, verses 13 all the way to the end of the chapter. Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate? And difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a sensible man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house, yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed, and its collapse was great. When Jesus had finished this sermon, the crowds crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. This is God's word. Um, I was telling the last service, it it always um, catches my attention when Scripture records not just the content of a teaching, but uh, the original response of those who originally received the teaching. And the the final words of uh, Matthew chapter 7 Um, It might seem like a throwaway line to you, but it's not. It's actually a litmus test for you to know whether or not you have understood what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. All the way at the end there, when Jesus was finished speaking, Matthew records for us that the crowds, when they heard what Jesus had to say, they were astonished by what they heard. It's a really strong Greek verb that means literally to drive somebody out through the use of violent physical force. 
When Matthew says the crowds were astonished, he's saying these people were so impacted by what they heard that day, it was like somebody physically struck them and knocked them off their feet. And Matthew says it wasn't just a, you know, a select few people like the disciples that heard that. He says the crowds were astonished. And so in light of that, and I think this is appropriate to talk about given that it is the last week and, and really kind of like the summary and conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, in light of that, the question that you and I should be asking yourselves, the question I want to put before you today is, am I astonished at Jesus' teaching? And the way I see it, uh, everybody who listens to this teaching, I know we hate to be put into groups and categories, but I think it's fair to say that everybody who listens to this teaching is going to fit into one of three categories. I think it's accurate. Uh, on the one hand, uh, there's probably some people listening to this who would say, yes, I am astonished by Jesus' teaching, and I am living right now every moment of my life in light of that. I find his words energizing and invigorating, and uh, they're challenging me and encouraging me and transforming me moment by moment. I'm living in light of that. And in my experience, um, walking with Jesus, uh, those periods of time, while they're amazing, they usually don't last very long. Um, and so if that's where you find yourself this morning, praise God for that, but you're probably not going to be there uh, for a while, and there probably aren't a whole lot of people that are, are there right now. On the other hand, category number two, there's probably some people listening to this teaching that would say, no, I'm not astonished by the words of Jesus, and I really don't care that I'm not astonished. Again, I would say that's probably a small group of people because why would you come to church or listen to this message if you don't care at all? Uh, unless somebody forced you to come here against your will, which I do want to go on record as saying, it's not a viable way to evangelize, guys, so whoever's doing that, please stop. Uh, then you have a third category of people, and this is where I think probably most people live uh, most of their lives. That's a group of people who, if asked, am I astonished by Jesus' teaching, they would say, uh, you know what, if I take the mask off and get honest, no, I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm not astonished, you know, given what that word actually means. I'm not living every moment of my life in light of what Jesus has said. I'm not, I'm not continually being challenged by it. I'm not continually being uplifted by it. I'm not allowing those words to be the functional foundation of my life. I'm not astonished by them, but I want to be. I want spiritual experience. I want to grow. I want to be mature. I want to live life in light of the, uh, the teaching of the designer of life itself, Jesus Christ. And, and, and really this teaching is sort of specifically aimed at people in that category because if I can be really honest with you, that's where I am. That's where I live most of my life. And I'm a pastor, so if that's where you are, don't feel bad. You're welcome here. Uh, to do that, <clears throat> my goal today as we summarize all this is just to get Jesus' words out there and then get out of their way so that we can be astonished the way the original recipients of this teaching 2,000 years ago were. And what astonished them so much was that what Jesus does here is he holds up and he explains how utterly unique this way of life that we call the way of Jesus really is. And then he tells us what we have to understand if we want to walk in that way of life. <clears throat> so that's going to kind of serve as a guide for our time together. The first thing I want to do is... is um, Look at these two ways of life that Jesus sets before us. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but back in verses 13 and 14, Jesus says there are two roads. One leads to life, one leads to death. Uh, a few verses later in 17, really driving the same point home, he says there are two trees. One produces good fruit, the other one produces bad or literally poisonous fruit. And then at the end of his teaching... Uh, the end of this passage we're looking at, verses 24 through 26, he says there's two houses, one's built on the rock and one's built on the sand. When you think about those metaphors, what Jesus is saying is that there are two ways of life that on the, similar, uh, on the surface look remarkably similar to one another. 
uh, meaning they both look like uh, two roads that are perfectly safe to travel on. They look like uh, two trees that produce fruit that is uh, totally fine to eat. Uh, They look like uh, two houses that are perfectly safe to live in. Um, But the difference between these is that one of these roads destroys its travelers. One of these trees produces fruit that poisons its partakers. One of these houses collapses in on its residents. And really the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus desires that we would be able to discern between these two ways of life and choose wisely. So obviously here's the million-dollar question, what are they? What are these two ways of life that, according to Jesus, look so remarkably similar on the surface, yet lead to such devastatingly different outcomes? Now, what people assumed in Jesus' day, and what I think it's safe to say a lot of people uh, assume even today, is that Jesus would be talking about, uh, okay, way number one, you're a good person that lives a good life by keeping the rules. Way number two, you're a bad person that lives a bad life by breaking the rules. The problem with that is that those two ways of life would not be two roads, two trees, or two houses that look anything alike. It would take no skill or discernment whatsoever to be able to tell the difference between an openly good moral life and an openly bad immoral life. So that can't be what Jesus is talking about here. And we know that because in these final words of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually gives us uh, basically an illustration of a human example of what he says is a bad tree. And I'm going to read it to you. Before I do, I'm going to make a bold statement until the 9 a.m. this. Uh, Maybe my mind will change years down the road the more that I read Scripture and and spend time with Jesus. But I tell you, at this point in my life, what I'm about to read to you is what I consider to be far and away the most sobering and unsettling teaching of Jesus during the entire uh, uh, time that he was here. It's right here in verse 22 where Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Uh, I'll I'll repeat myself. Um, This is Jesus' example of a bad tree. So let's go through um, the profile of the person Jesus is describing here. First off, Jesus says this is a person that comes to him calling him Lord. The word used there is the, um, it's the name assigned to God in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, something we call the Septuagint. What that means is that this person is coming to Jesus recognizing that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is divine. He is the Son of God. He's not just a good man or a wise teacher or a good example or anything like that. Point is, this person has what you'd call orthodox belief, orthodox doctrine. They could sign the statement of faith at this church or any orthodox church. Uh, Not only do they they come to, to Jesus calling him Lord, but they say, Lord, Lord. That's important because in Scripture, whenever you see the repetition of a word, that's meant to convey intensity of emotion. Point is, this person doesn't just have kind of like a cold intellectual, uh, intellectualism about them. This person is actually excited about Jesus. This person is actually passionate about their faith. Uh, this is a person who probably cries in worship services regularly that other people point to and look and say, man, I wish I got it like that person got it. <clears throat> and at the end here, Jesus says that this person prophesied in his name. Uh, what that means at least, whatever else that means, what it means at least is that this is a person who taught the message of Jesus to others. 
Then Jesus goes on and says this person cast out demons and did many miracles. So this is a person that has been deeply involved in the lives of other people. Uh, and as a direct result of their, their service to other people, they have, uh, they've seen healing and liberation and real change and transformation. In other words, this is a person uh, that God is actually working through to transform lives. So let me just pause here and kind of zoom out. If you, if you look at who, who Jesus is talking about here, if you look at them through the categories of the head, the heart, and the hands, they check all the boxes. Regarding the head, they have great doctrine. They could ace the Bible test. Regarding the heart, they're passionate about their faith. You look at them, and man, they really, they're moved by this. I wish I had that kind of passion and intensity. And regarding the hands, not only are they serving other people, but God is working through them to affect change in the lives of other people. Now, if you think about who this person is here, let me just spell it out for you. This could be a pastor of a growing church. Jesus is talking about here. And Jesus looks that person dead in the eye and says, I never knew you. So I'll ask you again, does that astonish you? Because I think it should. If you have followed along in this series, then you have seen, and you see this especially just a chapter before this in Matthew chapter 6, over and over and over again. I think this is one of the most surprising things about Jesus. Over and over again, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is comparing Two different people. But if you followed along, you know Jesus never compares good people who live a good life and bad people who live a bad life. Instead, he compares two people who are both living an outwardly upright moral life. And what Jesus is comparing is Christianity and a merely religious lifestyle. The reason Jesus does this, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because I'm sure not only is this, this potentially happening today at our church, but in thousands of churches across this country, uh, it is entirely likely that two people sit down at a church service next to one another. One of them is legitimately a follower of Jesus that's had their life transformed by Jesus. And then right next to them is a person who's living a merely religious lifestyle. If you were to follow both of those people throughout the week, what you would find, not surprisingly, is they do a lot of the same things. They both pray. They both read their Bible. They both try to be nice to people. Maybe they're generous with their money. They go to church. They try to do some good in the community, get involved in other people's lives. But what Jesus is continually driving home all throughout the Sermon on the Mount is that religious people do what they do for totally different reasons, which leads to a completely different result in their character. And so back to the original question that I asked, the two roads, the two trees, the two houses that Jesus is holding up alongside one another and, and, and desires us to be able to discern the difference between them, what he's, what, he's getting, what he's trying to get us to see is the difference between Christianity and a merely religious way of life. So let's go a little bit deeper than there and, and ask the question, which Jesus answers in, the, in, in his Sermon on the Mount. Let's ask the question, okay, uh, what's the reason that religious people do what they do? If they do things for different reasons than Christians and it leads to a different result, then, then that begs the question, what is the reason that people who are living a merely religious lifestyle, why do they do the good things that they do? And at the beginning of Matthew chapter 6, Jesus answers the question. He says to get honor from people. That's why they, they get out involved in other people's lives. It's why they give to the poor. It's why they do good. It's to get honor from other people. The word Jesus uses there is the Greek word. Uh, it comes from the Greek word that, that uh, means glory. And so what Jesus is teaching, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but what Jesus is teaching, and really what the whole Bible teaches in, in different creative ways, story after story, is that a religious person is simply a person who deep inside of them, they have no sense of their own glory. Meaning they have no sense of their own significance, no, no deep sense that they really matter or that they're a person of worth. 
And so in everything they do, Jesus is saying, they're trying to to make the world give them the glory that they are so desperate for. And Jesus goes on a little bit further in chapter 6 and says, not only do religious people do that with other people, they even try to play that game with God. That's why Jesus says that when religious people pray, they're not praying to get God. You know, if if you want to think of prayer as just a conversation, you would feel gross if you found out after the fact that somebody was, you know, trying to have a conversation with you because they just wanted to get something from you for their own sake. You would want somebody to have a conversation with you for your sake because they genuinely are interested in you. They just want to experience who you are. They want to get to know you because you yourself are valuable to them. Jesus teaches that when religious people pray, in other words, when they have a conversation uh, with God, it's never about God. He says they pray so that they'll be heard for their many words. Jesus' point there is that religion is essentially just a power play. It's, attempt to str- it's an attempt to strong arm God into giving you the life that, that you want uh, because it, it essentially approaches God and saying, God, you have to answer my prayers. You have to save me. You have to bless me. You have to spare me from suffering because of these good things that I've done in this good life that I've lived. So it's not really about serving God at all. It's about trying to get God to serve you. The point that Jesus drives home here is that in everything that religious people do, what they're actually, where they're coming from is this place of hunger, this place of need. Everything is simply an attempt to try to get their needs met. And if you're curious about what that leads to, all you need to do is look at how the gospel accounts, that's the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you want to know what a, a, a deeply religious heart leads to in a person's life, All you need to do is look at how the gospel accounts portray the most religious group of people in Jesus' day, a group that we now know as the Pharisees. As, As uncomfortable a thing as this might be to do, one of the wisest things that we can do, if we want to find out who we really are, if we want to get to the bottom of what's really going on in our lives, one of the best things that we could do is just mow through the gospel accounts Look at how the most religious people in Jesus' day are portrayed and simply ask the question, to what degree does that exist in me? And what it shows us over and over again is that if you are a deeply religious person that really hasn't experienced the grace of God in a personal and life-transforming way, there's going to be symptoms in your life. Uh, You'll have to compare yourself to other people that you think are worse than you so that you can feel better about yourself. There's all kinds of stories in the gospel accounts of the Pharisees doing that. Um, You'll be deeply tribal, meaning you'll be basically incapable of having a relationship with somebody who holds a different opinion than you. You'll have a tendency to see them as a threat, as evil, as beyond redemption, as the the real source of all the problems in the world. You can't reach across an aisle and kind of love and serve an enemy the way that Jesus calls us to. You'll be deeply envious of people that uh, you think are getting the life that you deserve, or at least a life better than the one that you're getting. You'll, you'll struggle internally with things like anger and bitterness uh, and resentment because you'll feel like nobody's ever really treating you as well as you deserve. And maybe, ultimately, the hallmark of a religious heart is the inability to bear up under suffering, the inability to have any kind of joy in the midst of suffering because a religious heart is one that says that while other people might deserve what I'm going through, I don't. I've lived too good of a life for this. Uh, now, nobody wants to admit those things. But Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount is that this way of life that he died to make available, 
This way of life that he invites us to follow him into that we call Christianity or the way of Jesus, that is a way of life that is nothing like a mere religious way of life. And his point is Christians and religious people, they might do a lot of the same stuff, sure. The difference is that Christians are doing what they do for utterly different reasons, which again results in an entirely different product in their character. Um, This is exactly what Jesus is, is getting across here in verse 17 when he says that a good tree produces good fruit. That's a painfully simplistic statement, but there's actually a really profound truth underneath that. What Jesus is explaining with that simple phrase is why religion doesn't work. It's an outside-in approach. It's a, it's a philosophy of life in which you're, you're sort of in, um, indoctrinated with this idea that maybe if I do all these things, maybe if I live a good enough life, maybe if I succeed enough, maybe if I achieve enough, maybe if I can prove my worth through things that I do, then I'll finally feel whole. Then, you know, what I sense is wrong with me, maybe that'll finally go away. I'll finally be filled. And to use Jesus' tree analogy here, he's, he would say, that's like hanging fruit on a dead tree and waiting for the tree to come to life. It doesn't work that way. Uh, the fruit, of course, does not produce life in the tree. The fruit is simply a manifestation of the life that's already there. So what Jesus is teaching there is that his followers, people that have legitimately given their lives and been transformed by him, they'll go through life doing everything they do, not in an attempt to get something, but because they already have something within them. And if you're curious about what that thing is, again, Jesus answered that question for us in in another uh, text. It's in John chapter 17, verse 22. In John 17, Jesus is praying. This is hours before he goes to the cross, and he's praying not just for his immediate disciples, but for everybody who would go on to give their life to him. So it's a really, it's a meaningful passage of Scripture to me, and and, and I think it should be to you, because in in those chapters, Jesus is essentially praying for, for us, for everybody who's given their life to him. And in John chapter 17, 22, Jesus is talking to God the Father, and he makes a kind of amazing statement. Uh, He says that I have given them the glory that you have given me. Jesus is saying, I have given my followers the glory that you, Father, have given me, Jesus. Uh, It's it's an interesting passage because it kind of gives us a behind-the-scenes look into what the life of God was like before Jesus came down here. And what that verse shows us is that in an eternity before Jesus entered into human history, if you've ever wondered, what was God doing all that time? That's one answer to the question. God the Father was giving glory to Jesus. He's celebrating over him. He's rejoicing over him. He's giving him, you know, the perfect love and honor and glory that, that we all long for, every human heart longs for. And what Jesus is saying there is that he gives you the same glory that God the Father gave him. And he doesn't do it at the end of your life if you've managed to live a good enough life and and, and prove yourself worthy or anything like that. He gives you that glory the moment that you give your life to him. And so a Christian is somebody who lives uh, with that assurance and they live out of that assurance. And what that effectively means is they're able to go through life and do everything that they do without needing to be honored and applauded and praised and validated by other people. They don't need to get glory from other people. That need has already been met in Jesus. And so when they do everything that they do, if they happen to get glory from people, they're free to to welcome that and receive that without it going to their head. But even if they never get that or that's taken away from them, it doesn't go to their heart. 
It's not the end of their life. It's not like life isn't worth living and why did I do all these good things? They're not driven by that. They're freed from that. And so Jesus is teaching here that one of his followers, somebody who has legitimately had their life transformed by grace through faith in his name, they'll go through life and, and with everything that they do, they're not doing these things to get a need met. They're doing it because their needs already have been met in Jesus. That's the difference between these two ways of life. Now, before I move on to what's basically the conclusion, let me just draw one more point here. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but the Sermon on the Mount, it's not like Jesus was just walking along one day and spouted it off and then did whatever else he did for the rest of his three, three and a half year ministry. Uh, from what we can tell, the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' go-to message that he preached everywhere he went. That's why Matthew and Luke's gospel accounts record different versions of it. We have every reason to believe Jesus gave this message, you know, several dozen, if not, you know, hundreds of times during his three years. Now, with that in mind, let me just ask you to consider this. For Jesus to make this topic, discerning the difference between actual Christianity and a merely religious lifestyle, for Jesus to make this topic the focal point of his teaching to the point that, you know, when he's con con concluding, he's just driving that point home. For Jesus to place that much emphasis on this one idea means at the very least, it must be real easy to mix these things up. It must be real easy to live with a great deal of self-deception, maybe even thinking, yeah, I'm living a legitimately, you know, spiritually alive, transformed by Jesus Christian life, when in fact you are blinded by your own religiosity and you have no idea. That's Jesus' whole point with these three analogies that look so similar on the surface but lead to such different outcomes. So here's the question, and may, who knows, maybe this, maybe this is the most important question we can ask ourselves during our short trip around the block here that we call life. How do I know that I'm not mixing these things up? How can we know that we're not mixing these things up, that we're not lying to ourselves, that we're not so blinded by our own self-deception, that we're in fact on a road that leads to death, a tree that will produce death, and a house resting on a foundation that will result in death. How can we know? And Jesus answers that question with this little exchange at the end here. And what he gives us is, is basically two things. This is how we're going to end. Jesus gives us two things that we have to understand if we want to break out of the religiosity that every human heart naturally gravitates toward and enter into this way of life that we call the way of Jesus. They're both found in verses 22 and 23. Let me read them to you. <clears throat> Jesus says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I'll announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I just want to draw out two ideas here, and then we'll close. Uh, what I want to look at is how people approach Jesus in this scenario, and then how Jesus responds to them. When you look at both of those, you'll find the two things that are necessary to break out of religion and into this way of life Jesus invites us into. First off, when people come to Jesus in this scenario, the very first thing out of their mouths is, didn't we do all these things? Look at all these things that we've done. And we talked about this earlier. These are people that legitimately have lived good moral lives. They've done a lot of good in the lives of other people. They, maybe they've done a lot, you know, a lot more good than a lot of Christians, but look really carefully at how they're approaching Jesus. They're saying, look at my achievements. Look at my successes. Look at my morality. Look at my resume. And all they're trying to do to Jesus 
is the same thing that they've been trying to do to everyone they interacted with all throughout life. They're approaching Jesus, demanding that he give them something they want as though he owes them because of the good things that they've done and the good life that they've lived. So if that's the wrong way to approach Jesus, according to Jesus, question is, what's the right way? How should they have approached Jesus? And to answer that question, uh, I'm going to borrow my answer from someone you may have heard of named Alistair Begg. If you haven't, he's a, he's a great preacher. And I would encourage anybody who's interested to look this clip up this week. There's about a three-and-a-half-minute clip on YouTube of his. It's one of the most powerful little clips from a sermon I've ever come across. It's called The Man on the Middle Cross. The Man on the Middle Cross. Take some time looking that up this week. You will not regret it, but I'll summarize it for you. In that little clip, Alistair Begg is reminding us that if we're not constantly preaching the cross to our own hearts, then just because of human nature, we're going to slide back into basically what Jesus is warning us about here. This way of life where we're trying to justify ourselves and prove ourselves by our own efforts, which is just an exhausting way to go through life to begin with. And he says, if you were to stand before God at the end of your life and you, you, know, you got to give a reason that he would let you into heaven, he says, if your answer begins in the first person, you have immediately gone wrong. So what that means for me, I'll personalize this for me. If I was to, to stand before God at the, at the end of my life, which I will, and my answer was, because I pastored a church, uh, because I was a firefighter before I was a pastor. I don't know if you ever heard that, God. I mentioned it a few times in my sermons down here. Uh, because I was a good person, because I tried hard to be a good father, because I felt bad when I hurt people, because I tried to do more good than bad at the end of the day, because I prayed a prayer, walked an aisle, got baptized, took communion, whatever it is, Alistair Bakes says you've immediately gone wrong. The only correct answer to that question is in the third person, because he and then he pivots and he starts talking about the thief on the cross, which maybe you've heard of. And I, I love that he brings him up because the more that I thought about it, the thief on the cross, I think, might be the single greatest example of grace in the entire word of God because he is a person that literally ruined his entire life and never got the chance to make any of it right. And yet we know because Jesus said so, he got in. He is in the presence of God right now having a way better time than you and I are. And he said, imagine what that interaction was like for the thief on the cross and the angel at the pearly gates. I don't know if there's really pearly gates and an angel with a list of people, but you understand the analogy. He says, imagine the thief coming before that angel, and the angel says, what are you doing here? And he says, uh, I don't know. And the angel says, okay, um, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? And, and the thief says, I've never heard any of those words before, thanks. Uh, and the angel says, okay, um, are you at least clear in the doctrine of Scripture? You know, that it's the inerrant, infallible, inspired Word of God. It's the foundation of truth for God's people. The thief says, listen, I've never read a single page. Uh, and they, they go through this, this thief's resume, and he, he's never been to a church service. He's never been to synagogue. He's heard all kinds of people. He's evidently lived a really wicked, immoral life, which is why he was being crucified publicly and nobody was crying about it. He hasn't prayed a prayer. He hasn't walked an aisle. He hasn't been confirmed. He hasn't been baptized. And finally, the angel exasperated says, on what basis are you here? And the only answer the thief can give, the only answer that any of us can give is the man on the middle cross said, I can come. I don't know how you say those words without getting a little misty-eyed. And Alistair Begg does it better than I can. He's got this great accent that I would pay for, but alas, all I got is this one. Maybe he thinks I have a cool one. I don't know. But the point is, to move from religion to this way of life, 
I almost don't like using the word Christianity because of how much that's been thrown around and sort of tainted. To, to move away from a mere religious way of living into the way of Jesus that he died to make available for us, what we've got to learn to do is to stop looking at just the bad things that we've done, but even the best things that we've done and realize there's nothing that we can do to earn God's love or favor or approval or acceptance. There's nothing that we can do. And if we can't accept that, then according to Jesus, we're actually further from God than the people who are living an overtly immoral, broken lifestyle. Because Jesus himself said that tax collectors and prostitutes or entering his kingdom ahead of the religious leaders. I'll just say this. If you're here today, you're new to church, you're not really sure what you think of Christianity, if you have, a, if you have an issue with religious hypocrisy, I can tell you this, you and Jesus have at least one thing in common. He's got a real big issue with it too. It was a focal point of his teaching during his time here. So to break out of religion and genuinely into this way of life that we've been talking about all morning is to stop coming to Jesus with a posture of heart that says, Lord, Lord, I've done everything for you, and to start coming before Jesus with a posture of heart that says, Lord, Lord, you have done everything for me. That's the first thing we have to understand. <clears throat> the second thing is found in Jesus' response. I don't know if you noticed this, <clears throat> But when offering the final verdict over an individual's life that has not put their trust in him, all Jesus says to this person is, depart from me. I just ask you to take a second there and ask yourself, what, what would you think Jesus would say there? All he says is, depart from me. And what that's meant to teach you and I, uh, you want to talk about some thundering implications for our life. That's Jesus' way of showing you and I that the ultimate punishment is to lose him. The thing that makes hell, hell is that Jesus isn't there. And what Jesus is saying here is, is what, what a human soul will find when we've lost him, if we lose him, that we've in fact lost everything. And if that's true, then what that means by implication is that what you and I have been looking for all of our lives, and again, this is regard, just please consider this, regardless of whether or not you've been raised in church or this is your first time, you're interested in the things of God, the Bible, Christianity, or not, you're skeptical, you're a believer, however you identify. What this means is that what we have been looking for all of our lives, regardless of what we say we believe, the love that we've looked for in every relationship, the beauty that we've looked for in every sunset, the glory that we've looked for in all of our achievements, the experience we've been looking for in all of our travels, all of our adventures, the peace that we've looked for in every substance, what we have actually been looking for, whether we realize it or not, is nothing less than Jesus himself. We were made to know him, and it is only a relationship with him that can satisfy the deep longing of our souls. That is the final thing that Jesus says Merely religious people never come to understand that Jesus desires us to understand now. So, ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> we have arrived at the end of our time together and the end of this series. What I would love to do today is end by telling you what you need to do. But I can't do that because Jesus didn't do that. And this is perhaps the most astonishing thing of all to me. You zoom out from what Jesus says here, and all he does, all he does is hold up these two ways of life that look so remarkably similar, but have such devastatingly different outcomes, and then Jesus just 
stops talking. The final words of the Sermon on the Mount is recorded by Matthew. Jesus says, and the collapse of that house was great. And then he just walks off the stage as it were. And I don't know exactly what people were like 2,000 years ago. I got to imagine they were still people, and therefore they're like you and I. And so I, I, I have to believe that 2,000 years ago, the people that heard this sermon live, when they were, you know, sobered up, when they were, you know, astonished, when they were moved, when they're, you know, thinking about life and death and eternity and all this kind of stuff, after a message this sobering, they're, they're waiting for Jesus to tell them what to do. But I'll just say, if, if that's where your head is, if that's where, what you're waiting for, then I, I don't mean to sound rude or abrasive, but I'll just tell you, you have completely missed the point of the Sermon on the Mount entirely. The primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is not to get you and I to add a bunch of activities or behaviors or routines to our lives. The primary purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to get us to do something far more difficult than that something that our hearts resist far more powerfully than that, <clears throat> which is to slow down long enough to face ourselves and get honest about what's really going on in our lives. So before Jesus' teaching gives, gives you and I anything to do, it first forces us to ask ourselves, and I'll just make these personal for you, what road are you walking down? Everybody's on one. Everybody's on a spiritual journey. The question is, what road are you walking down? What kind of fruit are you producing? And what's the real foundation of the life that you're building? Because if we ask, if we have the courage to ask those questions of ourselves honestly and follow those answers wherever they go, that's when this sermon can begin to astonish us and really change us. Because there's not a single one of us who, if we ask those questions honestly and just buckle up for the ride, there's not a single one of us that will not find that to a far greater degree than maybe we want to admit, we are living merely religious lifestyles, meaning we are moving through life primarily out of this need. And that even not just our selfish, not, not just our obviously bad behavior, but even our best behavior is tinged by selfishness. That at the end of the day, everything that we do is an attempt to try to manipulate God or others into giving us what we need because we're so starved for glory. It's an incredibly painful thing to realize about oneself. But in realizing that, the absolute worst thing that you and I could do is to then try to start fixing those issues ourselves because, and this right here is the essence of Christianity, that's not how a person changes. A human heart cannot transform itself. That's the whole reason that we need Jesus. And so the purpose and function of the Sermon on the Mount, this is where it's designed to take us all the way to the end of ourselves where we come to a new or just a newer realization of exactly how much we need Jesus. And what we see at the end of Jesus' life is how far he was willing to go to meet that need because at the end of Jesus' life, only about two, three years after he gave this teaching, what we see is that Jesus was willing to walk the path that led to destruction for us. That at the end of his life, he was willing to become like a tree that was cut down and thrown into the fire. And at the end of his life, Jesus knew what it was like to have not just the hatred of mankind, but even the wrath of God beating against him like a storm on a house without a foundation, and he collapsed under the weight of it. Because when Jesus Christ called out on the cross, even though he had lived the perfect life that you and I owe God and know we cannot give him, when Jesus called out to God, 
he heard, as it were, depart from me, I never knew you. And what was happening in that moment was Jesus was paying the price so that he could make us the promise of John chapter 17, verse 22. What was happening in that moment on the cross is Jesus was being stripped of his glory so that we could find the glory we have always longed for by grace through faith in his name. I'm going to call the worship team up, and we're going to close with this. I know this was a heavy one, um, and I certainly didn't, didn't plan it that way on Father's Day, but what I did want to do, since it is Father's Day, is leave on a little bit of a, um, a sentimental note. Uh, a couple of years ago, I got the opportunity to do something I had never done before, which was to teach chapel um, at my son's school for the, um, the kindergartners through the fifth graders. And the principal reached out to me with like a month or so of, um, of time to prepare. And so I said yes. And, and, you know, as you can imagine, being a, a pastor and a father of four, I uh, got real busy and it kind of slipped my mind. And so the day was approaching. And, uh, and as it did, I was caught off guard at how nervous I was to preach chapel to kindergartners through fifth graders. It's not the easiest thing for me to admit, but grace abounds, right? Right? <laughs> um, and so I remember the week arrived that I was scheduled to give this teaching, and I was really stressed out about it because, you know, my son's going to be there. I don't want to let him down and embarrass him or anything. And, and uh, I didn't really know what I was going to say or how I wanted to say it, and so I came home from work. I sat down on the couch. I remember this like it was yesterday. And, uh, and Everett sat next to me. And he had his notebook in his hands. And he said, uh, Dad, I want to show you something. And I knew this was going to be big because Everett, like his father, he's a man that enjoys his privacy. And he actually has carved into the cover of his notebook, do not enter. So we, dead serious. So we cracked this thing open and uh, he flips a few pages. And there were two pictures that he drew while he was in school. And they were of us. And uh, in one of the pictures, we were hugging. And in the other picture, we were playing together. And he had just learned how to write. And so underneath those pictures, he wrote that he loved me and that I was the best dad. <clears throat> so for all you dads out there, you're all playing for second place. Everett's already declared me the winner. <laughs> and when I read those words, um, it's difficult to describe exactly what they did to me, but I think the best way that I could phrase it is, and I think you know what I mean, they just took me out of myself. You know, I, I, it, it, the nerves, the anxiety, the stress, the exhaustion, they just went away because you, you know what I'm talking about. That's what love does to a human heart. It just, it melts you, it lifts you, it gives you perspective and courage and strength and, and all that kind of stuff in a way that no one will ever be able to quantify or explain with formulas and data and statistics. It's just what it does. But I just want to ask you as we close today, if a child's love can do that to a human heart, what do you think God's love can do? What would it be like to know that your heavenly father, the one whose opinion of you is really the only opinion that ultimately matters, not your parents, not the people that you've supported, not the people that you've really hurt, but his opinion, that's the only opinion that ultimately matters, what would it be like to know that he sees you to the bottom, but he loves you to the stars? Because in Jesus, I'm telling you, he does. He does. And he gives you the glory that he gave Jesus because Jesus gave up his glory to get you. 
And when you see that, and when you're filled with that, you're not going to need anything else from other people. You're not going to need anything else from God because you'll know that you have everything you need. And it will free you to live this way of life that we call the way of Jesus. So I just want to ask you one last time, does that astonish you? Because I think it should. Happy Father's Day. That's it. That's all. Let me pray for us. God, I think we all want to be astonished by what you've done for us. I think we're tired of going through life asking other people to give us things that we know they, they can't give us and being constantly disappointed and exhausted and bitter and burnt out. It's an exhausting thing going through life, trying to prove ourselves, trying to earn our sense of worth and value. And, and you love us so much that you've created a way out of that life. And I'd ask this morning um, that we'd find it and we'd walk in it, that we would be so astonished by the fact that you were willing to give up your son and your son was willing to give up his life so that we could enter into your family and have you as a father. God, I just pray that this would be the day that burdens would fall off. People would understand what Jesus meant when he said, come to me, everybody who's, who's weary and tired and exhausted, and he'll give us the rest that our souls are looking for. Let us find it today. We're not going to find it anywhere else. Teach us to stop looking and learn our lesson and come on home. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. God's people said, amen.